Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up. There's a 41-year-old winning stages and a 21-year-old winning Grand Tours. Because I've never ever seen a systematic analysis of when do crashes happen, how do crashes happen. You can't extend the length of that piston too far because it still has to fit within the same overall space. So welcome to our first episode of our Tour de France coverage of 2021 and uh, last year we did a lot of uh, coverage around the Grand Tours and uh, got uh, quite a good response from all of our listeners and our Patreon supporters and uh, we decided that we would do a couple of uh, special podcasts around the 2021 Tour de France uh, for this year as well. So uh, give me some background to look at some of the issues in the sport. We're not going to analyse every single stage, we're going to look at uh, more the uh, some of the physiology that goes on, some of the performance of the top uh, riders that are out there and some of the issues involved uh, in the Tour. And of course, in this first week of the Tour de France, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we're going to get uh, a bit of a thank you from uh, Professor Ross Tucker, who's got our, a list of our latest patrons, um, who are our patrons on Patreon, who are uh, supporting us on our podcast. If you want to check out our Patreon page, you can go to patreon.com and then look for Science of Sport. And uh, you can uh, support us with a bit of a donation if you like what we do but uh, ross is going to welcome our latest patrons on patreon there's a lot of you so thanks very much this we have 21 olympic athletes uh this is the this is the different rankings based on the, their very generous donations yeah depending on your pledge amount uh, we have 14 olympic champions and two olympic legends plus a couple of upgrades who've gone from being champions to legends as one does so I've got a list of names to read out. Not exactly enthralling listening, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I also don't remember when last we did this, so I might well be repeating some it's names. Okay. But I don't mind repeating our supporters. Two welcomes is fine. So Satish Puna, thank you very much for donating. You're an Olympic athlete. Liz Marshall, who I actually know, used to be a student here in Cape Town, sports science student. Mm-hmm. So thank you to Liz. Uh, Gordon, just Gordon, like Pele, just Gordon. Uh Someone who says Mr. Manager, I think they based on the email, it's Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. Anna Petrikos, Hugo Coherve, Sergio Stilacci, Cyprian de Masson, uh, Clint Lawrence, Stuart Leitch, Christoph Vecherek, Brian McIntyre, John Wright, Tom, just Tom, Ron Tyler, James Dodd, Paul Templer, Brian Ryder, Carla Groom. Uh, and then a couple others whose names I just have to find here. Hans Christian Smedsrud, I think is the pronunciation. I hope I got that. Thanks very much, Hans Christian. And uh, Frida, and unfortunately the surname hasn't come up, but just go with Frida. Thanks very much. So you're all Olympic athletes, uh, Olympic champions. Very nice. Thank you, guys. Yeah, so Olympic champions, Stevie B, Ian Chambers, Peter Hitchin, Josh Miller, Karen Hughes, Gary Renouf, Craig Farrell, Richard Waite. Hugh Cooper, Mark Evans, Matthew Stretch, Peter Newing, 
Adam Hardy and Kate Stalker. I know Kate as well. She's a physio, I believe, up in England. So thanks, Kate. And also for your kind message. Much appreciated. And then Jonathan Moniatis and Bogsy, who judging by the email is Andrew Boyle, have become Olympic legends. So thanks very much to you. Also, just to note, uh, we had a couple who edited their pledge. Darren Jacques went from being an Olympic athlete to an Olympic legend. Good going. And we had one other whose name I'll find in a moment while I'm scrolling. So thanks very much to all of you. Oh, Alex Watson has also gone up a tier. Thanks to you for increasing. And Mattia Fenty, who provided us one of our fitness definitions and then said for reading it out and, and including him in the party, he was going to increase his pledge. So thanks very much. <laughs> I've tried to go on then and uh, on Patreon share with you some supplementary material after mm. each podcast and that's the plan so you know we we often sit down here and we say we're going to talk for 30 40 minutes we end up talking for an hour we could do two hours so whatever spillover exists i'm going to start filling over to patreon so if that's an incentive hop yep. on hop on there and and pledge to us otherwise don't and just listen it's, all, it's always good to hear from you. And so. We've got some nice um, interviews that we are doing ahead of the Olympic Games where most of them are going to be done on uh, video and hopefully we'll be able to load some of those videos up to our patrons uh, to watch exclusively. So mm. some exclusive content for you guys as well. And if we do, every so often we do some Q&As where you get the chance to ask those questions that Ross has just talked about. And you can, uh, if you're on our Patreon Supporters Club, you get a chance to ask any question you'd like. And hopefully we can tell you what the answer is and do some research around it. So, Mm. A few advantages for being a patron, but also a big thank you for those of you that do support us and uh, really do appreciate it. Yeah, and then um, very quickly, just a couple of other followers. Keith Fowler, who I don't think is a patron, but got in touch on the Twitbox and said that in response, on our, on our last podcast, I think you, Mike, um, kindly told everyone about my 50% tour <laughs> challenge. Thank you yes. for the pressure. What are you now? Day six. Day six, and so far so good? Uh, yeah, so far so good. The weather's been the biggest challenge. I was going to say, I mean, for those of you that uh, live in South Africa and maybe even live in Cape Town, the weather over the last week since Ross attempted to do 50% of the Tour de France distance has been probably the worst week we've had in about two years. It has been epically bad front uh, cold front coming through so Ross kudos to you and I've already given you kudos on all your Strava uh, performances but amazing that you got through it because it has it has been absolutely the worst <laughs> mentally it's got to be hard to do the worst part is the um the weather closed one of our most beautiful routes yes so you can no longer go over Chapman's Peak which which means I have to basically do the same ride every single day <laughs> so actually I don't mind the wet because it changes the it changes the look of the ride because mm. I have to concentrate. I can't just go on autopilot. So it hasn't been that bad. But um, What have you learned about yourself so far? It's too early to have learned anything. Even, even now? Um, I mean, I, the fact that you get out every day in these conditions, it must show you that you've got some, you've got some mental fortitude. <laughs> if you're going to be dumb, you have to be tough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, no, you can't ask me these introspective questions okay. just off the cuff. Well, like I'll, that. I'll you, tell you after I'll, the Tour de France is over, and after you've done this thing, we're gonna we're gonna do a podcast yeah. and spend a bit of time talking about what you've learned. Because I think for those of us that like to take on these challenges, and I'm not just talking specifically about your challenge that you're taking on now. I know some people that are doing 10% of the tour. I know some people that are doing 50% of the vertical ascent every single day. Most of it down Swift. Um, and there's lots of different people. My son's doing 
25% of the tour. So this is becoming a thing mm. that people are doing percentages of the tour. And you've got Lachlan Morton now who's actually doing the entire Tour de France, including the transfers and trying to beat the, the Tour um, Peloton to Paris. So, Which is such a hold my beer move. I mean, it is. I, was, I mean, 50% is not that big a deal. But then I saw that and I was like, oh. Yeah, come on, it, man! He's <laughs> showing us all. Well, I think your fifty percent is a big deal, you see, because I'm, I'm I think ten percent would be good for me right now. But so. yeah, it is it is interesting because I think what it does. Uh, I've done the Tour de France twenty five. I think we did it twenty percent um, last year, and what it does, it shows you a little bit about what goes. Just a small thing. I, I got my sense. Okay, you've got to recover. You've got to make sure you've got a hard day coming up, or a long day, or a short day. And therefore, you start planning your recovery quite early. You mm. start thinking about how you can maintain your energy throughout. And I guess for the pro riders, we know that those top pro riders in the Tour de France are not racing every single kilometer of every single stage. They have stages when they're going hard, and they have stages when they're just riding in the peloton. Yeah, and. <laughs> So I was sort of facetious that I said, no, I haven't learned anything. That is definitely something front of mind all the time is 10 Ks into an 80 K ride. I'm not thinking about 70 K to go. I'm thinking about the 125 tomorrow. Yeah. So the, the ability to plan and to manage the budget over three weeks instead of one day, knowing there's a rest day is quite key. But then I'm sure we'll get onto this when we talk about the real cyclists <laughs> doing yeah. the real tour. Um, they're racing day day by day also and having to make those decisions in a competitive situation and so it's quite it's quite an interesting dynamic mm. do i go hard if i'm feeling good or do i actually rather play it cautiously so it's it's been interesting and obviously i'm going to um analyze it to death for sure yeah. and so that's going to be because the we can do that part. these days can't we we can analyze every ride yeah to exactly yeah absolutely. and that's why it's intriguing to me yeah. Yeah. but it's been fun yeah. So far, so good. Anyway, and, yeah, good and, and anyway, the reason we brought that up is because a couple of you, um, one on Twitter, Keith Fowler, took the challenge and said he's going to do 10% of the mileage every day. So if they're doing 150 miles, he's running 15 of them. So he's running. He's doing a 10%. running challenge wow. of 10% of the mileage, sure. which is a pretty big deal. So For the 21 days? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he, put, right. he sent a tweet and he shared the timetable. So for example, example tomorrow he's doing 15 miles. Right. That's his longest one because That's tomorrow's proper. a 249K, 155-mile day. So anyway, it's a solid challenge. Yeah. And then Peter Newing, who I just read out as one of our Olympic champion donate, donations, patrons, he didn't share the details, but he says he's doing a similar challenge. So Peter, you must let us know how it's going. And yeah. if any others of you are doing it, Share it with us, you know, send yeah. us some Strava files. Yeah. Thanks to your announcement last week. I've got a lot more Strava <laughs> followers now. So I'm now, I'm now under pressure. I might, have, I might have bailed at the rest day, but now I can't. Well, now you are feeling a bit more like a pro because the eyes of the, our podcasting listeners are on you at the moment. That's right. Like, like Mathieu van der Poel, I have to just stay in the yellow now. I'm the, only, I'm the only guy in the race. So I've got all the jerseys. Well, let's start talking about what has been a very dramatic, and I always hate to say this, that this is the one of the most dramatic weeks, first weeks in it, Tour de France, because I'm sure there's been plenty of times that's been said over the last 115 odd years that the Tour de France has been around. But it has been an amazing week because we've seen Matteo van der Poel emotionally taking the yellow jersey. We've seen Mark Cavendish, who came back five years after working, winning his previous stage, winning his 31st Tour de France stage against all odds when everybody had written him off. Very emotional moment there. And then we've got, of course, Julian Alaphilippe winning the first stage. But 
what's interesting about this is that throughout this season, we've seen these sort of relative youngsters. Now, Van Apool and guys like Bart Van Aert, not necessarily youngsters, they're both 26 years of age, but we've got people like Remco Evan Apool, who is 21, seen as a Grand Tour contender, although he didn't do that well at the Giro. And then you've got the guys like Alejandro Valverde, who is 41 years old, who's won a World Tour stage earlier this year, and is still one of those athletes that the commentators pick when you're looking at an uphill flat-out finish. And he's by no means out of contention. He is there and could win a stage this tour. Yes, and so the question you're asking, I think, is why are we yeah, seeing why such a range? There's a big, yeah, there's a big spread of ages yeah. in the World Tour program at the moment, which seems unusual because we always talk about looking at the peaks. Where I saw a recent video cast where um, the speaker was talking about athletes actually peaking at around about 27. So most top 10 positions are taken by those 25, 26, 27. Mm. And after that, it kind of peaks down. But it seems now that you've got a range from 20, because don't forget Pogacar himself, 21 years old last year winning the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. And Valverde, you know, Valverde could be his dad racing in the same race. It seems unusual. So... Seem, I agree that it seems unusual, but I'm always mindful that I might be falling prey to a kind of bias caused by availability of information. Mm. Because right now, the only information I have is that there's a 41-year-old winning stages and a 21-year-old winning Grand Tours. Mm. And a bunch of young 20-year-olds, you're looking at Pidcock, Van Apool, Van Art, Evan Apool. So it's easy to formulate this um, observation that we've never seen such young and such old athletes as we are seeing right now. Mm. But that might not be true. So, so until, and, until I can actually like, uh, interrogate that theory, I, it, I'm, I'm, I think we have to acknowledge that we might actually be over-interpreting what we see, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, because there have been 19-year-old people in the Tour de France winning stages before. Admittedly, that was 60, 70 years ago. Mm. And if you go back 115 years, you'll find a, a cyclist younger than Pogacar winning the race. Yeah. But maybe, does that really count in 1904? Yeah, different era. Yeah. I think it was Henri Cornet, I think was the name. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if we expand this net beyond cycling, we see the same thing in track and field. Uh, if I think back, Mo Farah winning Olympic golds over 10,000 was the oldest athlete ever to do it the first time he did it. And then he did it again four years later. Mm. So he became the oldest guy by four years <laughs> replacing okay. himself. Justin Gatlin was a world 100 meter champion at 35, 36, which is also, you should not be running well enough under 10 seconds to win world titles at that age in the, in the 100. Uh, we will see in Tokyo, we will see sprinters on the women's side, Shelley and Fraser Price in, you know, a nine-year career. She's, okay, she's not in the same age bracket as Gatlin. But then also you think back, Sammy Wanjiru was winning an Olympic marathon at 22. You've got a lot of these young Kenyans and Ethiopians at 22, 23 winning these races. And conventional wisdom was always that you would peak in endurance sport, especially in your late 20s. Everyone knows that, quote unquote. Yeah. And all of a sudden now you're seeing older athletes. Gabriel Selassie was in his mid-30s when he set, right. I think, a marathon world record. Kept saying, okay, kept saying since been tarnished by a doping scandal. But, but still, there is this... There is this perception, and, and if I had more time, I would go back 40 years, you know, look at 10 or 11 Olympic Games and 
measure the average age of the finalists, the average age of the medalists, the ranges, and look at that spread because it would be really interesting to know if there's been a shift to the right and to the left. If I had to hypothesize out loud, I would say that the average age has probably stayed the same of medalists, but we're seeing younger medalists and older medalists. So it's flattened that curve out such that the average might still be 27, but now you're seeing 21-year-olds and 33-year-olds. We used to see a range from 25 to 29. Yeah. So if that's the case, then the question would be why? Well, yes, I suppose that's what I was asking really, isn't there? I mean, yeah. So, are there, are, there, are, there, are there hypotheses around this question, do you think? We, we could come up with some. I mean, on the, on the older side, in the last 20 or 30 years, the ability of athletes to manage themselves medically and recovery-wise arguably extends a life out of, a, mm. of an athlete. So if you're in your mid-20s and you're now looking after yourself through injury prevention, prehabilitation, sleep, nutrition, that, that has to be, you'd think, worth be worth two to three years mm. added on to the end of your career. If you are injured, let's say you have a Achilles tendon or a knee injury, whatever it is, I suspect that the medical care that is available to you now is good enough and better than it would have been 10, 15 years ago. Mm. And that probably means that a career that ended at 28 in 2000 is now going to be a career that ends at 34. Mm. So that's arguably the case. You, you can't ignore the fact that doping probably extends the lifespan of an athlete. And the reason I say that is because if I'm in Hollywood and I go to an anti-aging clinic, mm. I'm getting sports doping products. I'm getting EPO and testosterone and growth hormone. Mm. So, so we know that anti-aging is doping yeah. and therefore doping is anti-aging. Yeah. So, so when you see these 40-something-year-olds doing unbelievable things and they also happen to be implicated in doping scandals, maybe that's a fairly short, straight line. Is it, I mean, notwithstanding what you've just said, is it not fair to suggest that there are outliers anyway the, in yeah. every sport? There are always going to be some athletes that perform at an older age beyond expectation, and sure. the same applies to those that perform very well at a young age. Absolutely. So even in studies of non-elite athletes, if you look longitudinally and you track them over 20, 30 years from their 30s into their 50s, the rate of decline in performance is hugely variable from one person to the next. Mm. So there would be average declines, let's say, of 2% per decade or 2% per year after you're 40. I think that's about what it is. It's between 1% and 2% mm. that you're supposed to slow down in, a, in marathons, for instance. But some people don't slow down at all, and other people lose 5% a year. Now, that's because they break down, their life situation changes. You can appreciate how complex it is because... Yeah. Someone who's 40 um, suddenly is married with two or three kids, mm-hmm. higher powered job, 60 hour work weeks, less training time, worse performance, has nothing to do with physiology, no. but you measure it as a physiological outcome. So, and I guess, I mean, also, I guess in sports like cycling, you are less damaged damage than you were if you're potentially playing rugby, running, sure. um, any, I mean, things like, that's why we see so many incredible golfers who are much older in their late 40s still participating mm. at, a, at a world-class level right. in their 50s even at golf, because I guess that the the destruction of the body is less, effect, is less of, of an course. issue in those sort of sports. Yeah, yeah so wear and tear, that's, yeah. that's what it is. And yeah. so 
Yeah, so so that that's why I mean you know you know some 60, 70 year old cyclists who you wouldn't want to be in a group yeah, ride with because they'll, they'll punish you. Yeah. And so so <laughs> they're that, inspiring and intimidating at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the, the, anyway, the point was that yes, there's huge individual variation. Some people are just immune to aging. Mm-hmm. Um, well, more immune than others. Then on the other side of it, the 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 reason for younger champions is interesting. Many of the same reasons still exist. I suspect that the level of professionalism in sport now, allied to the, I, I can't think of a better word for it than the commercial um, foundation of the sport. So. You've got these big money teams in cycling, say, who have every incentive in the world to find champions. They don't mm. care if that champion's 28 or 22. In fact, 22 is better because that means now yeah. as opposed to five years from now. So so when a, when a company comes along and sponsors a cycling team for millions a year, they're not coming there with a long vision. They're coming there to say, in two years' time, I want a Tour de France champion. Yeah. So then it creates this incentive to look aggressively for young talent and to not delay the development of that young talent. Where I think what was happening in the past, certainly if we go back 30 years, is a young cyclist was coming into a team without that accelerated pressure. Mm. They were doing their almost apprenticeship, riding in the team, learning on the job. And then by the time they got to 23, 24, they get a senior role. And by the time they get to 26, 27, they've got a leadership position. Mm-hmm. Now, you th- I mean, guys like Avenapool was, and you mentioned before the Giro, was being touted as its favorite. Yeah. And he's only been cycling for a few years and yeah. he's still a 20-year-old kid. Yeah, he's a youngster. Wow. Now, that means that he's he's been catapulted straight to the top. And I think that's only possible because of the aggressive commercial thing driving that, the talent mm. development pathway. Then you've also got such more, such a lot more data with which to make those decisions. So we can now measure power and you can, you can actually assess the performance capabilities of a rider in a lab in the field, more importantly, without having to see him race over two or three years to figure out where he's strong and where he's weak. Yeah. So I think, I think that's arguably part of it. I mean, that's an interesting point you make there is that you can look at, uh, you know, look at those top riders and if, they, if they're on a curve, the right curve, and they're showing good numbers at 16, mm. 17, 18, you know they're going to be at a world-class level at right. 20 years old, 21 like Pogacar. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. let's take yeah. even, even Funapool. So you're yes. not going to put them through the apprenticeship phase when they potentially could be somebody that could win you, the tournament. You don't need to because you know exactly where they yeah. are in relation to what they need to be to win. Yeah, so you, let's take Funapool yesterday. It's, it's like the, the guy has hasn't even done double-digit time trials in his life yes. competitively. Yeah. I think by his own admittance. I think it was his fifth one yesterday, mm. and and it might even it might not even be that. I've I've read articles, and I, for some reason five sticks in my head. Um, in any event, there's not many. They they would now be able to say, right, we know what this guy's capable of over four or five minute efforts. We saw it on um, stage two. We know what he's capable of over one hour because he does that regularly in the cyclocross. We know what he's capable of on a time trial now, and that's without aerodynamic optimization, shall we call it. All that really remains is to say, right, where is he in relation to the best climbers, and can we change that? Mm. Because if the answer to that is yes, then he's a viable Tour de France guy in the next two or three years. Yeah. We don't need to see him for five years racing the Tour, finishing 60th, then 40th, then 20th, and then becoming a contender. They can go away in the off-season and figure out how to change enough of his physiology that next year he comes back a contender. Yeah. 
and that wasn't possible before. So I think I think the ability to reverse engineer mm-hmm. the the performance based on the demands has been maybe the biggest change that allows young athletes to accelerate their development. And Tadej Pogacar is probably the best example of that to some extent. Isn't exactly. He? Someone you know, he's been fast tracked by his own performance, I mm-hmm. guess, but he has been fast tracked. Someone has noticed based on data, and I mean, you can't ignore a guy's winning everything when he's, mm. he must have been winning everything at 1920 to be mm. scouted. Mm. But now they've got the data and they say, all right, this guy can do six for 30 minutes. What's a kilo for 30 yeah. minutes? He's a contender. We know that he's 61 kilos or whatever he is, I'm not sure. That means he's going to go uphill at this speed. There's only five guys in the world who can do this. Mm. He's going to win the tour. Yeah. Uh, if we just look after him and find another 5%. So, so that, and that was known when he was 20. We didn't need, as again, to harp, the, harp on the point, we didn't need to see him for four or five years to figure out the potential. That potential was immediately obvious in his first lab session, but more important, his first field tests, his first road mm. tests. So I'm sure that's got something to do with it. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating area yeah i mean as an as an older fellow myself i'm quite inspired and i know that he's been tainted um in the past alejandro valverde but uh, there is something about wanting him to win a stage because he just proves that he, it's possible at a at an affair i mean he really isn't a, a, a fair uh, advanced age in terms of cycling though chris horner did win the, the vuelta a few That's years true. ago at 41 yeah but uh but valverde is you know he's a he's a sort of sentimental hope for those who are, us who are getting older to prove that you know you, you can be competitive i mean that the the longevity is one thing but the quality of the longevity is and yes. it is i mean he's not he's not a very sympathetic character in my eyes um <laughs> but you have to you have to t- tip your hat to the fact that He's, look, he's not the only guy who's tainted from the era that he rode no, of through. Of course, of course. But he's the only one who's still winning races at 41. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah you've, you've got to acknowledge that. I, th- I think it's – Yeah. I don't think you can dismiss yeah. that fact irrespective of what else has gone on in the guy's career. So let's move on to the very, uh, I mean, I think if anybody's been watching the Tour de France this week, they've been watching the many crashes that we've seen. And uh, Mm. there's been lots of discussion on the various websites about why these crashes are happening. Lots of them are being in quite alarmist saying this is the worst amount of crashes in a week, etc, etc. But... You know, it's difficult to look back on the last hundred years of the Tour de France, and there's Mm. lots of factors that are involved with that. But... Is it fair to suggest that we are seeing a Tour de France this year that seems to be more accident prone than in the past? I, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I've watched coverage on Supersport, which is our sports channel here in South Africa, mm. where they've got Simon Gerrans and a guy whose name I knew yesterday, Anthony someone. Do you know Anthony McCrossan, yeah. That's the one, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, they, they keep mentioning how this tour is unprecedented for crashes. I've watched on GCN, which I think is the Eurosport feed, They've got guys saying also, I've listened to podcasts and they're talking about how this it's out of control, the crashing and something needs to change. I've read articles online and they're all saying the same thing. Mm. But nobody is ever looking at this in an objective, systematic way. And so I spoke earlier when we, when we think about the ages of cycling champions and we get this perception of young and old extremes, I think the same availability bias might be in play here mm. because I do distinctly remember even in the period that Lance Armstrong was winning the tour there was always talk about get through that first week unscathed because mm. there were going to be so many crashes and one or two of the five or six favorites were going to be affected by them 
Yeah. That's the situation we're in now. We've had Thomas and Port, uh, Thomas Port and Roglic lose time and potentially conditioning as a consequence of accidents. So until someone does a systematic historical analysis of crashing and accidents in the Tour de France, I feel as though cycling runs on, I'm not going to call them urban legends, but it's it's like that. It's it's that concept where you you know truth through storytelling. Mm. What, what's that called? It's a perception of reality in a way. And, right. And a, yeah. So, you know, the way it used to be before things were documented was people would tell ancestors would tell kids their stories, mm. and then they would pass that story on from one generation to the next, and that's how truth was understood. Cycling feels like that to me. Because I've never ever seen a systematic analysis of when do crashes happen, how do crashes happen. Is is a cyclist more likely to crash going downhill on his own, or in a peloton? Mm. Now you're going to say, oh, obviously it's a peloton, but not obviously. No, do we know that? Yeah, exactly, we don't, we don't yeah. know that. Yeah. So cycling feels stuck in a, in a little bit of an ancestral communication method. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, Braniel will talk on a podcast about in his day, and then someone a little bit more modern will talk about in his day, and now we're looking in our day. And mm. I don't know what's true. Anyway, I'm not I'm not sitting here saying that it's all nonsense yeah. because I, it feels like there could be something. But again, until someone systematically until somebody does can it, actually prove it, yeah. So, so in in other sports, like in my main job now, I do this for rugby mm. because you can't just say, "Oh, players get injured all the time." What does that mean? It means nothing. Mm. So, what you should be doing is saying. How many injuries happen? How many minutes did the guy play before he got an injury? How was the injury? How did the injury occur? Was he making a tackle? Was he being tackled? Was it in the first half or the second half? Uh, so, and, so, so for instance, some of the things that need to be known is what's the cause of the accident? Is it a vehicle? We've seen that. Yes. Is it a fan? <laughs> We've seen that. We've seen that. Um, is it a sign on a fan? Dude, speaking, <laughs> speaking of... Actually, no, park that. Let me just finish this train of thought. Is it rider error? I mean, we saw in the Giro guys descending on their own. No one within 100 meters of them go off the side of the road. That happens. Is it another rider? The, the, the Ewan Sagan crash, the Roglic crash, where it seemed like he got a little bit barged out by, was it Cabrelli? Is it equipment failure, brake failure, or, or, or the, the tubeless tire pops off the rim, or something like that? Mm. What were the conditions? Is it wet? Is it windy? Is it dry? You know, you've got you've to ask questions like this to understand it. How many riders were affected by it? Uh, what stage of the race was it in? What was the situation of the race? Did it happen in a breakaway, the peloton, in a sprint? Yeah. Uh, what was the road situation? Is it narrow? Was it a descent? Was it an urban area with road furniture and bollards and pavements? Or was it in the countryside mm. with crosswinds maybe causing it? And then what was the severity? So what I, yeah. would, what I would love to see is for the UCI... Or and all of those factors that you just mentioned, including the narrowness of the roads, which has been a criticism this week yeah. particularly, they're, they're, they're a contributing factor to... That's just one contributing factor that we could say it doesn't mean there's more crashes. It was maybe just one stage that exactly. had a particularly nasty finish. That is exactly the issue here. So, yeah. so ideally what you would do is, and if anyone from ASO or UCI is listening to this, like, please do the study. I'll, I'll do the study if you want... <laughs> Is you got to, and it's going to be hard because you've got to go back and you've got to watch hours and hours and hours of footage. You go say, right, how many kilometers did they do on very wide, wide and narrow roads? Okay, how many accidents were there per hundred kilometers on each of those roads? Because then you can start to work out what's the propensity of an accident on a narrow road versus a wide road. Well, you can measure the abandons, can't you? Wouldn't that be a good way to measure if 
Because abandons mostly come from accidents, I would think. If you know that the abandon came from a crash, yeah. but then you have to know where that crash happened. Mm. So when we watched the stage three the other day and we saw, in fact, even stage one, there was narrow roads when the sign hit Tony Martin and then a few k's later there was the big, even bigger crash. Mm. Those would be classified as main peloton rides, uh, crashes, narrow roads, front of the race, 10k to go, whatever it was, right? But ma- maybe that doesn't have as high a propensity as we think yeah. is, is the point I'm trying to make. And yeah. until and so now what we what we get get instead is cyclists organizing protests, saying we, we don't like these conditions in these situations. Arguing that the, the, the neutral zone or the neutralization time should be applied at five K or eight K to go instead of three. But until someone can actually quantify that that is the highest risk situation. I think it's reacting as opposed to being proactive. Yeah. And they, they just don't know this. And so how do you manage a risk when you don't understand the risk? That's the problem they've got. Yeah, that's a good point. Because there isn't enough data, you're right. It's, it's just yeah. commentators and people watching their perception of an event and you forget what's happened in the past. You just work yeah. on what your perception exactly. is now. Exactly. And, like, yeah, and, and, sure. and you, know, you know where else people do this is yeah. when they talk about the weather. Yeah. And you did this a few minutes ago and you said it's the, this last few days has been the worst <laughs> stretch of weather we've had in a couple of years. I'm sitting on the bike now and the other day freezing and wet and cold and thinking, I haven't, haven't seen weather like this in Cape Town in 20 years. <laughs> but I'm wrong. Yeah. Because I guarantee you there were days like this a year yeah, ago. Yeah. Probably. And there'll be days like this next year. Yeah. But our memories are so distorted by what we have available to them mm. that we just anyway, long story short is all this discussion and conversations all good and well, but if they really want to grab the situation, they have to analyze it and understand when these accidents happen, then they can fix the problem. Yeah. So even the discussions around this neutral zone, which has obviously been exactly. something I discuss, there's no point in changing that because the criticism has been, okay, they make it five kilometers to go or mm. 10 kilometers to go. Mm. How far back do you go before an right. accident is relevant or not? And you're yeah. taking out the essence of the sport, essentially. Mm. And it makes for great conversation because now yeah, you'll hear people saying, why is it happening? Oh, it's happening because... You know, you've got 20 odd teams and 15 of them want to be out of trouble. Five of them are just kind of happy to be there, I guess. Yeah. But now if the 15 teams with favorites or sprinters, their directors on the phone or the radio rather saying, guys, get to the front. Yeah. And so now you've got what I said to you earlier is it's like the world's most aggressive game of musical chairs, <laughs> except they're not chairs, they're bicycles yeah, and, they're not, moving bicycles. and they're not standing still. They're traveling at 60 K an hour. That's right. But the point is you've got 120 guys who want the space of 30 guys. So for every one who's there, there's three who's fighting for mm-hmm. that same spot. So and actually, there's less riders now than there was three, four years ago. But, but more, you, had, you had pelotons of 200. Now you've got a peloton this year of, what, 184 and 23 teams. So but with more teams, less, right? More teams, yes, but less less riders. So, so that's so with more teams, there might be more pressure to be on the front yeah, because yeah. fewer riders, you, you're just saying, you know, we need four or five guys per team. That's only 10, 12 teams yeah. that want to be there. That's 60. Now you've got 15 teams wanting four or five riders. More, more guys, maybe. I don't there's know. A, there's a great story on the cyclist.ca.uk where they talk about uh, how the radios affect the riders and how the director sportifs are sitting in the car and uh, barking instructions down the, 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 the uh, headphone sets to the riders and how irritated the riders get, which I guess supports a lot of the, the sort of purists in, mm. in, in the cycling community talking about like taking away radios because they, they do potentially affect the the riders needing to always get to the front maybe there'd be a different race without radios but 
It's a discussion well, for another day, I suppose. This is this is an example now. So that's that's a theory, and yeah. it's plausible. Yeah. But how about the alternative theory? I don't know whether this is going to be plausible. In the absence of radios, the riders would have to make those decisions themselves. Mm. And so they would be relying on communication amongst one another, which means that if, it, if the members of a team get split up in, in the peloton because other riders also want the same space and they get gapped, now all of a sudden you no longer have any communication with your own teammates. Mm. And that's a recipe for maybe a little bit of panic, mm. a little bit of risk-taking that you wouldn't otherwise have taken. Mm. And all of a sudden you have to try and initiate actions on your own and that could increase the risk of, of accidents more than the radio does. Is that plausible? Yeah, for sure. It's so, a good example, yeah. So how do you now make a decision? Because everyone is basically fitting the theory. They're, they're, they're coming up with theories for facts that haven't yet been established is the problem, I think, there. But anyway, uh, it's... It, Let's not just get stuck on yeah. hypotheses. Yeah. The fact the, po- the point is there's not enough research to actually yeah. suggest whether we have a higher accident rate than we've ever had and somebody needs to do that research before we know. And that's the first step. Yeah. Once you've taken that step, now you start saying why. Yeah. And and because you you got a stat admittedly from an old article saying that there have been fewer abandonments in the Tour de France yeah. in the first week than in history. And this was in twenty seventeen. Yeah, twenty seventeen, yeah. So you know, maybe reality isn't necessarily the same as perception sure. here. Mm. And then what we need to do is completely different. So yeah. anyway, I guess the fact of the matter now as pertains to 2021 is we've seen time gaps and injuries to three of the free race favorites, and that's not good. So just before we did this podcast, when I say just before, a couple of days before the podcast, one of the questions I asked uh, Professor Tucker was to talk a little bit about the physiology of cyclists. And I suggested that, and I, again, I was using my own hypotheses here, um, suggesting that people talk about cycling as the legs being a big lever, therefore people who have long legs relative to their body size, or maybe who people who have longer feet compared to their body shape, does it give them an advantage in cycling? And uh, what I was hoping for is a bit of negative information to suggest that the longer your legs, the better chance you have of winning a a time trial. But it's interesting, this space of, of cycling, because from what you've told me before this podcast, it's very difficult to define a perfect physiology for a cyclist, isn't it? Well, physiology is easier. Lungs and heart and yes, metabolism okay. and right. biochemistry. Let's talk about biomechanics then. So yes. it's the, it's it's the, the mechanics, mechanics where it gets really complicated. Because right. physiology, okay, yes. there's some play, but unless you've got an aerobic capacity or VO2 max of X and an efficiency yeah. of Y and so on, you're not getting near the front of that race. Right. But but I think what you're saying is biomechanics, and yes. that's where it's different. And it is really interesting, and it's really um, if you sit if you sit for even one hour and you go through the academic world of biomechanics and anthropometry of cyclists and body types and shapes, and I mean it's such a mess because it's not it's not clean. There's no single definitive study or even variable that has been linked to performance. So. No, it's not true that longer legs predict cycling performance. Um, It's not, you know, whereas for swimming and for running, I think it is actually more um, relatable to, running performance is more relatable to body type. If you don't have disproportionately long legs relative to your torso or your height, then you're not winning. If you don't have long tendons, you're not winning. Whereas in cycling, and you see this in the tour, aside from the fact they're all exceptionally skinny, there are... 
bigger ranges in body type than there would be in many other sports. Yeah. Which is, which is great. And what's interesting is, as, as you're saying, it, the, even the biomechanics of things like legs, for instance, you have different mm. shape, legs, length, feet sizes, all that mm. sort of thing. And no one defines whether you're going to be a good cyclist or not from, what, from the research that you've seen. No, it's very weak associations across the mm. board. And so, for instance, there's a study that's linked um, the length of your femur, which is your thigh bone between your knee and your hip, to cycling power output and efficiency. But it's super weak. Because there are probably half a dozen, if not more, other things that also impact on that. And so if you... So if when you, you say we can, somebody's done a study to look at the effect of that, but actually it's not conclusive enough no. or have a deep enough subject base. No. So if we, if we look at the physiology we mentioned earlier and we say VO2 max, mm. we're going to plot your marathon time on the y-axis and your VO2 max on the x. As the one goes up, the other one comes down. And it's never going to be a perfectly straight line, but it's a reasonably good fit. Make sense? Mm. So we'd look at that and we'd say there's a strong association between maximal aerobic capacity and marathon running performance. We'd find a similarly strong relationship between lactate threshold, between running economy and running performance. Now in cycling, those relationships also exist. But when we, when we look beyond aerobic capacity or economy, whatever it is, and we start saying length of legs, length of tibia, then it becomes different. I mean, I saw one study yesterday that found muscle mass in the thigh. Well, obviously. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. They give PhDs for this stuff. <laughs> so it was, they looked at a whole bunch of things, five or six different variables, and the only one that was significantly related to power output over a performance trial was muscle mass in the thigh. Now, that's that's a circular argument. Yes, right okay, yeah. you, you can see that straight away. So yeah, it's it's very interesting, and I think the reason is just very briefly. Like if you if you imagine you're in a camera tracking a cyclist from the side, and you're seeing those legs, and it's almost like a piston movement. Yeah, you can't you can't extend the length of that piston too far because it still has to fit within the same overall space. Yeah, makes sense. Yes, I'm trying to figure out where you're going with this, but anyway. So at the bottom of the pedal stroke, when you get as much leg extension as you're ever going to get, you could lengthen yeah. that. But then on the top of the pedal stroke, all that length has to be compressed into a smallish space. And, uh, and you can't make it too long because now your, your, your hip flexion is going to become too great and you're going to lose a lot of power because you have to compress that hip. Does that make sense? So what you're saying is that the idea that a longer leg prevent, gives you more leverage, therefore you should be a better rider, is uh, counter countered by the fact that you actually, once you get to a certain length, leg length, you actually, you've got a dead, a dead spot. Because it's a circular movement. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the key. It's not like swinging a golf club where there's really just one plane of movement. Mm. Because in, if you're swinging, a, if, in the world long drive competition, like you can, the longer your club is, the further you can hit the ball. Mm. Because the length and the force create the torque and the torque accelerates the golf ball. Makes sense, right? Yes. In cycling, like you can have length because the lever arm now, because in theory, a longer leg, longer crank, higher fo same force on a longer crank means more torque. But now that pedal has to move over a greater distance, and so the, the velocity that it has to travel is greater, and that then cancels out the torque. Yeah. Because the, the speed ultimately right. is, a, is the product of the torque and the velocity, yes. or the cadence effectively. So there was a study done, I forget exactly when, um, but they basically looked at extremely short all the way to extremely long crank lengths 
120 mil for the short, which is, that's super yeah, stubby. That's the track stuff. And then 220 mils for the long, which is oh. lengthy. I mean, that's... I keep in mind the average crank length is about 175 mils. Yeah, like I think yeah. I'm on 172.5. Yeah, what what do you ride? 175. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, what they found was that at the, at the two extremes, you compromise your maximum power output. Because what they did in this study was that they weren't doing sub-maximal endurance. This was a maximum sprint type thing. Mm. And they measured your peak power. At the extremes, it's lower, but everything in the middle, from 145 up to about 190, looks the same. Mm. And um, <laughs> that's because that's because as you add length, so much from marginal gains. There's a tra- there's a trade off, right? Between mm. and so in this study, the the longer the crank, the higher the, the torque, but the lower the cadence, because mm. now you've got to move that. Like if you think of the pedal as being on the outside of a circle, the circumference of that circle is much longer. So to move it through a full circumference at the same speed, you're going to have to be applying much, much more force. You can't do yeah. that. Yeah. So anyway, so you're constrained by one or the other. You're either constrained by the length or you're constrained by the cadence. And in the end, they cancel each other out. And that's why in the normal typical range between, say, 160 and 180 for crank length, there's no effect of crank length on power. Hmm. Where, where it is advised to change your length is usually to go shorter because it means less torque and that means less load on the joints. And so people who've got injuries and little niggles often benefit from slightly shorter cranks. Yeah. But in a, in a performance sense, not really. And so to bring this back to where it began, a, a tall guy like Van der Poel and a relatively short guy, say Carapaz or Bernal, you know, these little guys, in the end, one of them is not an advantage over the other because all they change is the bike setup and they find the same power through a different combination of cadence and torque. It's interesting because that also applies, I guess, to add the aerodynamics of things like time trials, where you're looking at two factors, being able to put down the power, mm. and then it was obviously the, the, the aerodynamics. And uh, I read recently that, uh, you know, most of the, on a flat road, what the rider's most against is, the, is wind resistance, whereas rolling resistance is about 10%, 90% of it's actually hitting through mm. the air. So it's that balance between being able to get down the power, but also being able to be aerodynamic because if you're too aerodynamic, you can't get down the power. And if you're not aerodynamic enough, you, you're, you're, you're going to lose time as well. So mm. in cycling, there always seems to be that sort of line between one or the other. And it's finding that line that is comfortable and as efficient as it could be. Yeah. And it seems to me, certainly from what I've read among the engineers and the experts, is that in the last few years, they've found ways to reduce that aerodynamic drag coefficient. Mm. You know, the CDA, have you seen that abbreviation? No. Coefficient of drag, basically. Yeah. And the lower that is, the more aerodynamic you are. Mm. And from everything I've read, that's now lower than it's ever been, mm. which is in part why, you know, 4K pursuit times on the track and time trials in the tour are as fast as they are now. Um, plus equipment. I mean, yesterday, Van der Poel road i'm not sure when this will go out but this is thursday now so on wednesday and the tour of the time trial Thunderpool rode a set of wheels i think actually ended up using only one of them but they they had a set of wheels driven 900k overnight <laughs> from andorra to where they were racing because he figured that he could keep yellow if he had the best equipment and in the end of course he kept yellow by what was it eight, eight seconds? seconds yeah so if that wheel was worth nine, yeah. that's the difference between riding in, in blue and yellow today. So yeah. so these things make differences. 
What's interesting is I was listening to a talk on YouTube uh, earlier today where they're talking about the evolution of the hour record and they were looking at sort of when it first came around from Eddie Merckx to Moser to that sort of thing. And they were talking about how in, how that record evolved is that every second record came as a result of a technological advancement and every other record came as a result of just human performance. So when Moser was doing it on a highly specialised bike and trying to go for that hour record, it was the technology that made him faster, mm. but then down the, and his actual wattage and his human performance was, wasn't as good. But then sometime down the road, when somebody was using the same bike, actually pushed out right. more wattage. So cycling is always that fine balance, I guess, between finding those microseconds in terms of aerodynamics versus always trying to push the limits in terms of physiology. Well, not necessarily microseconds. I'll bank that for a minute from now, but just... Um, out of interest, it's interesting that in cycling that's accepted, mm. and in running shoes we've argued why it's bad. Yes, because true. in running shoes it's the same thing. You're seeing the same physiology running 15 seconds, whatever it is, faster over 10k or minute and a half in a marathon. We're saying this is no good because we wanted to see physiology. Mm. The story you've just related is human breakthroughs, but not human. Yes, technology breakthroughs. Yes. Out of interest, did you ever notice where many of those one-hour records were set? I would suspect, I don't know, but I would suspect it probably at a low altitude because of the f- amount of oxygen you needed. In fact, Mexico City was a, was a ah, hot spot high for altitude. This, which tells you what? It tells you that even though you lose the physiological capacity at altitude, what you gain in thin air makes ah. up for the loss. So when you talk about 90% of your energy going into overcoming air resistance, the, that's actually a really great encapsulation of it because oh. you'd rather have... You'd rather compromise physiology than air. So that's, yeah, it's a good speeds. example to show you what the how the fight against air is so right. significant. I mean, now I suppose that's why you to see a lot of great sprint times at high altitude. Exactly. I mean, yeah. the, the the 200 meter record from 1968 stood until 1996. Mm. Pietro Manea was 1972, if memory serves me, until Johnson broke that because it was altitude assisted. And I remember reading a story many years ago about how Sergei Bubka, who had the pole vault world record of 614 meters, I think he did that in Sestrier, and it was because they felt because the air was thinner there, he was able mm-hmm. to therefore get a better height in the pole vault. And that record stood for, I think it's just been broken in the last year, so maybe there was some method in that madness just mm. in pole vaulting, <laughs> being able to run fast down the run-up straight and get through the air quicker during the vault. Yeah, I suppose if you can be <laughs> if you can be 1% faster, faster yeah. and your acceleration is one percent faster going up maybe that means one yeah. percent higher on the bar i don't know and and over 614 centimeters one percent is enough so i'm so. sure somebody would have done some study at some point just to wrap things up here but um it's to find what the optimal but then again what you're saying is if their altitude is the optimal um, place to to ride our record. Why would you go to allow altitude to get more oxygen? Because actually, that's insignificant, then, isn't it? Well, High altitude always wins that conversation. I don't or that battle. I think this was the case before, but I think because they've now, through engineering and aerodynamic knowledge, managed to get that CDA so low, the relative benefit of being at altitude has been narrowed. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. now at sea level through engineering, you can actually really bring it right down. And so all of a sudden that trade-off swings the other way. You'd rather have the oxygen than the, the aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think in the past, I just actually want to look it up because I don't want to 
be the guy who says they used to get altitude and it's only really one or two. But anyways. Um, well, while you're doing that, I, I'm just going to take a small segue. And for those of you that are watching the tour and uh, celebrate some of the performances this week, I mean, we've talked a bit about Matteo van der Poel and um, being so emotional in the finishing line when he got the yellow jersey. Obviously, uh, looking back at his uh, grandfather, Raymond Pugliador, who is never a yellow jersey holder, but often right up there with their top riders in the Tour de France. And he died a couple of years ago. And a very emotional for Matteo van der Poel to win. Then, of course, Mark Cavendish winning uh, that stage was just absolutely remarkable. So the Tour de France, uh, in the past, I always used to think that the Tour de France in the first week was a little bit dull and it was all about the sprinters. But this week we're seeing that it's uh, quite the opposite. And I think we're going to be in for another two weeks of incredible uh, action. So, Ross, have you found your stat you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, Eddie Merckx. Back in the in the time of Merckx in the 1970s, that was Mexico. In in uh, 1984, Moser, that was the famous one. That was Mexico City. He broke it again in Mexico City. So it it certainly, as I say, used to be that way. Mm, mm. But I think as the technology's improved and as the ability to get the rider into better positions has improved, the aerodynamic benefit, while still there, adds less than the thin oxygen takes away. Mm. So, or the low oxygen pressure, to be exact. So that that means that now, when you start looking at it, I mean, there's some Tom Zerbel in 2016 was in Mexico, um, but for the most part now they're in Switzerland and they seem to have come slightly lower. A couple from 2018, Victor Campanats went to Mexico for his. Um, yeah. So when was Campanats? That was 2019. So that was April quite recent. 2019. So that the technology still predicts that high altitude is the dominant place to do it yeah yeah so that's fair fair statement right as we look forward to the next couple of weeks of the tour de france so ross i want to ask you to just to give us a bit of your thoughts i know that we we love watching the tour and every single stage we've seen atale pogaccia now just eight seconds as we speak behind the yellow jersey of matteo van der poel but uh, it's in a way it seems that Pogaccia is so dominant and we heard before the tournament started that his numbers were slightly up on what they were in 2020. Is it a kind of a dull finishing last two weeks do you think or do you think there's still a lot of room for the for that top GC to be to change in the next couple of weeks? Um, I mean Pogaccia seems so incredibly strong. He does. I mean, I mean, the guy on a flat time trial is beating everyone else of his main rivals. Because it's one thing beating Kung and some of those time trial specialists by 20 seconds. But mm. when he's putting 45 on Roglic, admittedly, of all the guys yesterday, incidentally, that ride by Roglic surprised me the most. Because when you crash the way he did and you have, did you see the picture of him when he called himself a mummy and he's just covered in bandages? I mean, yeah. I've had... I've had one-tenth of those sort of rashes, you yeah. know, like just on the thigh or on your, on your side of your tibia or something, and they burn and they hurt and you feel like oh, you have a terrible. fever. And I mean, to, and to, it's the three or four days after when they start to heal, it's the worst. Right. You're not <laughs> sleeping as well as you should because yeah. you just like permanently feel like someone's got a soldering iron on your skin. And you get, you get this like systemic inflammation because mm. your body has to like try and heal what's now basically an open wound and is bruising as well. When you land heavily on one side of your body, maybe you get a little bit locked up in certain joints because you're trying to protect those now. So when riders crash, the, the real damage is done over the next day to four days. So for him and Thomas yesterday, I mean, Thomas, I, I can't see Thomas being a factor in this tour, but Roglic maybe still, he limited... 
the damage a little bit yesterday. You'd be foolish to say that the tour is going to be dull because mm. anything <laughs> anything could happen. Of course, as it has. Remember last year, Pogacar lost a minute and a half and then brought it back. I, I just I can't see anyone matching that power because you can imagine what what's the what's the power to do that on a flat ride and yeah. i put him on a nine percent at his mass i mean mm. it's very difficult to see maybe the weakness is actually going to be his team because he doesn't quite he has a stronger team than they did last year but certainly mm. not the team that Ineos potentially would have to protect a guy in the yellow jersey yeah so the race situation is is the one interesting element is that it's it's flipped the incentives around because Ineos on the front trying to control it invites Pogacar to attack. Pogacar really being on the front because, okay, Van der Poel's holding that yellow jersey, but we all know that's not going to be the case after the mountains. Uh, now all of a sudden Ineos has to attack. Roglic has to attack. He can't chip away in the final kilometer or two and gain 10 seconds here, 9 seconds there, time mm. bonuses. So maybe there's a bit of tactical intrigue, but... <laughs> The situation over the last three days, plus yesterday's time trial, in terms of the big three or four favourites, actually is, to me, quite disappointing. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. Well, hopefully uh, we will see a lot more excitement. And then knowing the Tour de France, and as we've seen in this first week, it's uh, when we think it's going to be dull, it sometimes gets really interesting. So let's hope that uh, happens. But for those of you watching, I hope you've enjoyed our podcast today. We're going to be bringing you our second episode of our Tour de France coverage about the same time next week. We will be wrapping up uh, sort of a week and a half of the Tour, and then hopefully we'll bring you a wrap-up at the end of the, the Tour de France. Obviously, Ross, good luck to you for your half Tour de France for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that as well. Well, but uh, from us for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.